time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. It's Tracy Silverman, your host of the For the Greater Groove podcast, The Future of Strings. We're talking about where strings are headed, what we're doing in the non-classical progressive string world. And I'm so thrilled to have my guest today, Miss Sarah Caswell, who is <laughs> one of the premier jazz violinists in the world today. She is... Um, She's been voted the rising star by Downbeat Magazine, Critics and Readers Poll. How many years have you won that thing now? I, I don't know. <laughs> a lot. It's, but it's a, it's, it means a lot when it's there, like when I see my name on that poll every time. So, yeah. You're a Grammy nominee for Best Improvised Jazz. So how cool is that? Uh, it was a total surprise. Total surprise. Didn't see it coming at all. I saw you, you posted something about it, and it was sort of like, Holy cow! Just like I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. It was it was funny. I was actually up in um, in Boston. I had just finished teaching at Berkeley, and I was in a coffee shop getting my getting my Joe, and um, I got a text message from the drummer in my band, and he was like, "Sarah, we're so excited for you!" And I was, you know, I'm like in morning stupor. I'm just like, "What? What's what's this about?" And he's like, "You don't know?" I said, like, "No." And so then he texts me the link to um, the listing of the Grammy nominees. Yeah. And um, yeah. and he said, "Scroll down to improvise solo." And I was like, and I let out the biggest scream in the coffee <laughs> shop. And everyone was just like, "What the?" You know, just wondering what was going on. But yeah, it was. Nice. I I didn't know like the the solo that had gotten submitted was uh, was one I had done on a big band album. Um, the, the guy's name is Chuck Owen, and uh, his band is called The Jazz Surge. And uh, so he'd submitted my solo with um, nice. with the album, and uh, yeah, bit of a surprise. <laughs> That's just the coolest thing ever for for a jazz player. Um, and also, you're a professor at Berklee College of Music at Manhattan School of Music. You've taught at the Mark O'Connor Camps, the Abersold Workshops, uh, Indiana University String Workshops, and things like that. Um, you've played with all kinds of great folks, like my buddy Daryl Angers, Four Generations yeah. of Jazz Violin. <laughs> that had to be a fun experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was actually one of my first times, I think, um, on the road, like touring with people oh, wow. and sort of getting that that experience of what it's like to, to travel around with the group and doing, you know, playing different venues every night and um yeah and it's daryl i mean how can you not have a good time with exactly. that guy He's, it was great it was really, really that's fun. so cool because my first real road gig was with daryl also with turtle island when that's i first right, yeah. joined that group and that was sort of my first uh break and yeah and uh, i always i call daryl my big brother because he kind of showed me all the kind of the ropes of just you know being on the road 
Yeah, yeah. It was it was a really special group too because I mean, so it was it was Daryl, and then it was also um, I mean, the the cast of the of the of the tour kind of rotated around a bit based on who was available. Um, but some of the main fixtures in that group were um, were Matt Glazer, Johnny Frigo, Joe Kennedy, wow. um, Regina Carter did some of these as well. So it was a wow. really an amazing crew of people. And as you know, I think it was like eighteen at the time. I was just wide eyed. I was like, oh my god, these are all my heroes, and you know, I just having bet. that opportunity to hang with them was was a was a dream i bet holy cow what an amazing learning experience too to just you know be a fly on the wall there and just to see how johnny frigo's doing his thing (laughs) and regina all you know wow just fantastic A lot of um, fun. And I was just looking at this wonderful video on uh, that uh, Dave Stryker just put out for yeah. for this uh, tune River Man that you're featured. You have a wonderful <laughs> featured solo in that. Oh, thank you. Very cool. That's always so so cool when you see you hear the recording and and then you see the video in the studio when you realize that it was all done live and this was not an overdub and right. as wonderful and perfect as it sounds oh. <laughs> it's like oh nice. my gosh she must have done 100 <laughs> takes and there's you know nope there it is one that take. actually you know literally that was we only did one take of that track wow like um and th- see this was for me i was t- absolutely terrified because this was um my first time meeting john patitucci and brian blade and they're two of my favorite yeah. favorite rhythm section musicians and i was just like oh my god this is gonna be like terrifying <laughs> yeah. and um and Dave, uh, Dave in general, when he when he tracks his records, he tends to do like maybe one to two takes, maybe three at most. He's just he's really focused, and when he goes into the studio and and um, he he knows what he wants wants to hear, and when he hears it, there we go, we got it. So we did Riverman, and you know usually like in my recording experience, like you maybe like. Well, you typically choose the second take because it just ends up being the, yeah. the one where right. everyone's relaxed and they know the chart really well and everything's going to be fine. Um, but we did one take and and everybody was uh, was right there in that moment. And Dave was like, that's it. Next one. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was my first time having that experience. But it was, you know, playing with Brian and and um, and John and Dave and Julian. It was just such an amazing afternoon. It was, you know, yeah. they're wonderful people, incredible musicians. And when you have that kind of vibe in the studio, it just it sets everything on the right foot. So it was a lot of yeah. fun. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I've had the opportunity to. Um... Uh, play a little bit with John and and Brian and, and mostly to watch their gig and uh, yeah. it's pretty astounding <laughs> the level that's going on right there. Yeah, it's it's crazy. But the, that's the, what I love about it is that you know in between takes we'd come into the studio like into the into the booth, um, and those guys were so kind and sweet and yeah. so humble yeah. that. You know, like you're like, wait a minute, you're what? Yeah. <laughs> like, you could you could be as arrogant as you want to be, and you are just so humble about what you do, and right. so gracious about you know, it's it, yeah, it was just it was a really wonderful thing to see, and um, yeah, just to witness all that. So. Yeah, Patatucci tells tells a lot of good jokes too. I don't know if you, uh, <laughs> if you guys yeah. got to that, but you get to the beer stage of the you know after the recording stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they yeah. seem like good, good, uh, yeah, be fun people to hang with for sure. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. And you know, which which makes me wonder, like, when you're heading into um, into a session like that, what do you do to prepare? How do you? Did he send you charts ahead of time? Did you know what you were heading into? Yeah, somewhat. So I, 
I was brought on board the project primarily as the contractor for the string quartet. So uh. um, for your viewers who might not know, the this album in particular is um, with, so it's Dave Stryker, who's a really great guitar player, um, John Battucci on bass, Brian Blade on drums, and then Julian Shore, who's the pianist and also the arranger for um, these uh, the, the tracks on this album. And uh, it's been Dave's dream for a number of years to record an album with strings. And so he brought me on board to uh, bring together the string quartet and um, and have them basically featured on all of the tracks throughout the course of the album. I th wow. There might be one, I, I haven't taken a listen to the whole thing in a, in a bit, but um, the, the bulk of the of the tracks are with, you know, with string quartet as accompaniment um, along with the rhythm section. Um, so that was actually where most of my preparation for this album was, um, was placed, was getting, you know, making sure that the parts were cool and then, you know, rehearsing with the string quartet and all that. Um, as we got closer to the recording date, um, Dave let me know that he was um, thinking he might have me solo on a couple of the tracks. Um, so when he told me which ones those were, yeah, it was a matter of, of checking out the, the arrangements with a different, a different level of detail, making sure that I was cool about you know, what he was kind of wanting, the vibe, the structure, um, and just kind of yeah, getting my head in, in that zone. Yeah, but we ended up tracking them on separate days, so the strings we ended up overdubbing our parts um, about a week later. So the rhythm section, um, they did their stuff, and I, I was there for that particular tracking session. And then the strings came in about a week later, and we overdubbed our parts. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Huh. Yeah. So well edited video. It all seamless. <laughs> oh no! I did that. Well, the, it, it's the. Um, I think it was his son who did the video taping, and yeah, the strings were actually in the same room as Dave, but right. they were. It was separate, uh, recorded about a week apart. So the rhythm section part is yeah, definitely all done in one in one chunk. The strings um, right. were added later. So. Right, right, right. Um, but what I was kind of you know curious to get at is more is kind of into the nitty gritty of right. yeah of you know preparing a, a chart and do you sit down at the piano do you work do you uh are, do you play piano do you play guitar do you play some chordal instrument i you would not want to hear me play piano huh. <laughs> it's pretty bad um but you know i i can you know sit at the keyboard and plunk out a few things but honestly i i do most of my preparatory work um at the violin um so in the case of riverman i i already knew the the song it's a it's a nick drake's uh, right. uh composition so i already was familiar with the original version um, and so in that case for me to prepare for this particular arrangement which you know has essences of the Nick Drake um, version but it's definitely its own thing um, yeah I mean I, I definitely I, I had the luxury of having some uh, some really beautifully done MIDI tracks um, to listen to in preparation so I was you know I've always been kind of an ear player um, mm. I mean of course I, I understand what, what you know what the changes are I'm reading I'm reading of course but um, my ear is usually the thing I go to first um, to really kind of yeah. get a sense of what the vibe is about, what the sort of the overall harmonic motion is going to be, um, and sort of getting my head in that headspace. Um, and then what I'll do is I go through and really carefully analyze what's going on with the chord structures, um, how the chords are moving from one bit to another, really kind of getting some of the details that I might have m missed in, in my listening um, preparation. And um, yeah, it's a lot of chord outlining. It's a lot of stepwise um, voice leading and um, just sort of figuring out uh, kind of a marriage between the ears and the eyes of mm -hmm. what it is that I'm wanting to um, mm -hmm. wanting to achieve. So I'm always kind of trying to keep my, my head in both spaces. Yeah. You, you mentioned the um, half-step voice leading kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, 
the inner melodies. This is something I was just um, shooting a, a course about this. And one of the things that I, um, the way I, I teach my students is to go ahead and take uh, a piece of manuscript paper and just put in guide notes for your chords. Just write in these guide notes and little melodies and you'll see the, you know, I call it a path through the woods. You might think exactly. you have, have this, you know, complex chord series of chords, and you find out that there's just a little melody that goes right through it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was actually an exercise that one of my teachers back uh, during my undergrad. I was I did my undergrad at Indiana University. Yep, with David and, um, Baker. Yeah, he was he well he was my um, one of my, my main mentors, um, and then uh, I studied with a couple other professors as well. Um, one being Pat Harbison and another uh, Tom Walsh. Both of them are are still there holding down the fort at IU, um, but one of the, I think it was a day, uh, no, it was, it was Pat who introduced me to this exercise. Um, I was kind of, I was going through a similar situations probably with some of your students were, where it was a um, succession of chords that were very sort of disjunct, that they weren't your predictable um, harmonic progression, like two, five, one or something like that. They were very like, what we kind of see as very separate entities. Mm -hmm. And it was like, how am I going to get my way through this, this chord chart? I'm like, I'm not really hearing how things are are moving smoothly from one chord to the next and it was it was an interesting exercise but it completely worked in a similar way that you're talking about where i just i took a tone and basically just made a, a point of just moving up or down by step half step whole step it didn't really matter which but i was just trying to thread a line a yep. continuous line through those changes and it was one of those things where it's like you know, that sort of exercise and that um, analysis enabled me to see that there was a lot more linear, more of a linear effect there that than I was actually yeah. letting myself believe. And um, it was through, you know, I, I think I did that exercise like at least four or five times. And it was through the process of that, that I would begin to start hearing how those, yeah. those lines intersected. Yep. And, um, and so then it went from a very vertical experience to something that was much more horizontal. Yes. Yes. Such an important um, just a, a simple technique that I think mm -hmm. really is effective for string players because we are such melodic players by nature as opposed to a piano who, you know, is used to kind of thinking chordally and guitar players who think in terms of big clusters of notes at once that define a whole harmony. Um, you know, our world is a melodic world and even though we, it's so important as jazz players for us to break those chords into scales and arpeggios and broken chords or whatever chord patterns. Um, just that simple process of finding the harmony through it, like the vocal, mm -hmm. the, the line you would hum going from one chord to the, to the next and using those as I call them target notes, just sort of your an or anchor notes, as, you know, that you can have, if you have this, let's say a, a melody and half steps and you can have, you know, uh, other notes joining them and going around them and ornamenting them, but using that as your sort of, uh, you know, your target notes. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I, I love to be. I, I mean, of course, a string, as a string player, I've always been drawn to melody, and I love that aspect of what our boxes would what they're able to do and how they're able to really replicate the human voice but then i i also equally love being able to get into the into the to, into the weeds and try to figure out yeah. exactly how um how other sorts of beautiful melodies can be found through that sort of analysis and that sort of um, um exploration into something that we don't necessarily always do as string players yep yep very very true and tell me a little bit about that um education you got at Indiana with a combination of David Baker and the, and the jazz department and you were like a split major or double major or 
you know, you and you graduated with like high honors with like a classical and jazz major. <laughs> yeah, I, I was kind of this, um, I was a bit of a chameleon growing up. Um, so my, my parents were both musicologists and oh, they had, yeah, very, very, um, it was a very music nerdy house, <laughs> <laughs> but it was awesome. I mean, this is pre-internet. So it was one of these situations where my parents, um, you know, as music historians really made a point to, um, surround, or, or, you know, surround us with music from all, um, all parts of the world. And they just wanted us to understand that there was a lot of music out there that was, you know, that we should be, we should be listening to. And and so enjoying cool. and um, and just learning about. So when uh, my sister and I both started our instruments, she started on uh, on cello, and I started on violin. Um, yeah, we were we were really fortunate. There was a great um, pre-college string program um, in our hometown. So this is all in Bloomington, Indiana, Bloomington. Yeah. which is where Indiana University is located. Um, so I started out doing Suzuki um, with Mimi Zweig, who still is in charge of the pre-college program there. Yeah. And um and I was having a great time doing that. Um, but then there, you know, my parents also were good friends with um, Stanley Ritchie, who um, at the time was in charge of the early music department. So I was taking some Baroque violin lessons from him. Wow, from a and young then, age. Yeah, I think I was started when I was five on violin. I started taking lessons from Stanley when I was probably about eight or nine. Interesting. And then, um, and then David Baker was also a good family friend of ours. Oh, and wow. so, um, so my mom inquired with him about the possibility of both my sister Rachel and I studying with him uh, doing jazz and he was like absolutely come on over <laughs> so um so we were doing you know these uh doing lessons in these three styles of music and then Rachel actually was way more talented at playing piano than I ever was and she was also taking some jazz piano lessons from one of the um graduate assistants in the jazz department so there was there's was a lot of music happening in the house but the, wow. the wonderful thing was that it was it was all stuff that we enjoyed doing. It was never homework. It was never a task. It was never a chore. It was, you know, and, and there were never really boundaries necessarily either stylistically. It was all just music that we loved making. Um, we just went to different teachers for each one, but there was, it was just the idea that we were making music and that, yeah. um, that all encompassing, uh, thing was a really wonderful way of experiencing the world. Um, but so I did those styles of music for a long time. And then when I got into high school, I sort of focused more on classical and jazz. And I was doing a lot of classical competitions, you know, sort of going down that, that route. But then I was also doing a lot of jazz work and gigs and, and having a good time with that. And so when it came to time for me to decide what I wanted to do for college, um, I really felt uh, I couldn't make a decision. And unfortunately, most of the schools were demanding that. They were like, all right, you can either major in classical or you major in jazz. That's right. it. And there were right. very few schools at the time that were offering a double major and very few schools that actually had uh, programs of equal strength. And so that's what drew me to um, going to IU um, because I would be able to continue my studies with David Baker and Pat Harbison and Tom Walsh in the jazz department. And then I could continue my studies um, in the classical division. And I'd been, I'd worked with Mimi and then I also worked with um, Joseph Gingold for about five years until he passed away. Wow. And then from him, from uh, after Joseph passed, I went to Henrik Kowalski and I studied with him for about uh, seven years. So it was, it was a busy 
undergrad, but at the same time, it wasn't as busy as you'd think it would be because a lot of the, the classes overlapped in the two departments. But what was frustrating was that I, I definitely felt like I was living a very segregated musical life. Like people who knew me as a classical musician mm. knew me for that. People who knew me as a jazz musician knew me for that. And there wasn't a whole lot of overlap in between. Um, so it was kind of an interesting, an interesting yeah. experience how that went down. Yeah. And how was that difficult for you? What were the challenges of that technically in terms of like the classical vibrato and all of that kind of stuff? And then when you're playing jazz, did David Baker, you know, um, try to get you to, I don't know, tone down the vibrato or do things <laughs> jazzier or kind of, you know, just uh, let go of some classical things or yeah. different rules? It's, it's interesting. I think when you start playing this like any of these styles of music young um you're not necessarily thinking about the differences between them and you it's sort of like being bilingual like if you're you know if you're fluent in two languages you don't necessarily and you start speaking both of them at an early age you're not necessarily thinking about the differences in right. in speaking them right you just, they're both natural they're yeah. both there um but that said i i definitely noticed <laughs> If there, if I had gone for a stretch of you know doing classical work and I hadn't played jazz in a while, I would notice some things were a little rusty, <laughs> and mostly what I would notice it was in my time. Like if I hadn't done jazz for like a, a couple of weeks or something, and I went to go play like a blues or whatever, I noticed that my time was a little more rushed and a little more forward than um, than I would like it to be. It's like all right, and I would always have uh, David's um, comments kind of rolling in my head. He'd be like, <laughs> "Lay back, lay back, <laughs> like, get in that." Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So. Interesting. Let's talk about the, the pocket a little bit, because, you know, that's kind of the focus of, of all of this stuff is, you know, the rhythmic aspect. How did, um, you know, what did David and, and your other teachers, your jazz folks over there, um, what was their advice to you other than just lay back? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, were there ways that they that they approached working on rhythm with you or? It was interesting. It was, I think David's approach with me was uh, a little more, less technical and more ear. And so a lot of our work, I mean, there was certainly work done in, um, you know, giving me ideas to, you know, to, um, to practice licks and scales and things like that. But a lot of where his teaching uh, for me really uh, was so influential was in how I how I listened and how I transcribed. And it was through, he, he assigned tons of transcriptions for me to do. And mm -hmm. it was through these transcriptions that he was able to sort of highlight things that I should be listening for. And um, so whether it be like that would come, the vibrato would come up in conversation, phrasing would come up in conversation, and certainly time feel would come up in conversation as well. Like noticing how laid back um, someone like Dexter Gordon might be with their solo and really sort of trying to achieve and imitate that same sort of, that yeah. same sort of vibe. Um, and just really sort of trying to emulate what it was that I was hearing, like taking it out of context and, and putting it into um, a framework of a song that I might be learning with him. So it wasn't as much like a technical thing, like do this with your bow, or right. um, uh, you know, practice this exercise with the metronome. It was. It wasn't quite so much that. It was basically showing me how to become a, a, a mindful listener, 
and um, and being aware of what it is that I'm hearing and how to adapt to um, to that particular context, knowing what I know about the violin and, and all of that. But what's in, been interesting is for me to get different people's perspectives on um, how to do this. But you know, because obviously as a teacher, um, I want to be able to speak to the students that I have. And some students are going to have a really great ear and will be able to do a similar, um, have a similar experience as I did with listening to solos and, and learning from that. But then there are going to be other players who are very much wanting to get a technical um, breakdown. Like, okay, I want to swing better. Like, what do I need to do? What exercises do I have to have? Or right. like, what do I technically do to make this work? And so being right. able to really sort of be able to put myself in the shoes of my students to see what it, how, how best to communicate um what they what they need to be doing is something that i really um i enjoy i mention all this because your strumming book yeah. has actually been very influential for me over the last couple oh, of years God. in figuring out how to help students lock in better with time and um, just get a better sense of what it is to yeah to feel the groove and to and to get into that pocket like the i've been having them subdivide left and right and like yeah. <laughs> these different exercises and rhythmic patterns yeah. and it's been really interesting even to see like I, I've, I've done this actually at some of the camps where I've taught um, Abersold's camps in particular I'm usually teaching um, adults in those classes and they're, they're much more honest about how they're doing with something like if I give them an exercise to do and I say like, how are you doing with this and they're like oh terrible you know? <laughs> yeah right go, great I did great <laughs> <laughs> but whereas like um, if something's going well they'll be like whoa that was a big, there was a big change. So I right. kind of use them as my guinea pigs to see if like some of the new concepts that I'm trying out in my teaching will work. And I've, so I've been having them play melodies, like all subdivided where they're playing like sort of the, like every beat kind of then bringing out like through accents what the melody, what the actual melody notes are. Yeah. Um, so I'll have them go through the song that way. And then I'll have them play the song as written, but thinking about that experience they just Interesting. had. And Interesting. it's, it's amazing how like, it's kind of like that light bulb moment where like, whoa that just felt so much better and um oh, I, I have so cool. i have you to thank for that because it's been something that has really been um very beneficial for for them and for me too i mean i'm learning right alongside that's awesome them, so. that's awesome and thank you for saying that you know i was just yesterday shooting um a new little a mini course about using um how to how to kind of enhance your rhythm for cl and classical music yeah. you know because there are a lot of classical players who would like to have that sort of jazz-like freedom, that improvisational freedom, even though they don't, you know, really want to learn how to play jazz, right? You know, I mean, it's, yeah. let's face it, that's a lifelong pursuit. Um, but they would like to, you know, just be able to have a little bit more uh, a rhythmic life into their classical music. And by just doing that process of bringing a physicalized groove, like a Latin groove that's got a strong clave or something, and it just makes your body move, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and using that energy of, of that, that physical energy to then bring it to your classical music, then take away the Latin accents that are anachronistic and, and don't fit the time period that it was written in, and, and try to retain the same physicality because mm -hmm. You know, the thing, the thing about rhythm I, that I think a lot of classical players are missing just intuitively uh, is that um, all of those dances were for real dances. You know, they were like, people dance them. Mm -hmm. Whatever the period of time was and the clothing styles, whatever it was, but they were moving around 
and dancing with each other. And there was yeah. a whole dynamic there. Music was playing a part of that. And the part that music plays in that social, very social situation is to keep people moving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's got to no, be rhythmic. No, it's true. I, mean, I, I feel like my, my dad talked about this a lot when he would teach his music history classes. And it's like we've we've turned so much of this music into very much an academic sort of study. Yes. There's not the social context, like contextualization exactly. of it, right. where you really you think about like what was socially happening at this time? What was like, like what was their form? Like what was the entertainment that people relied on during these times? I mean, like, yeah. the same could be said for jazz music, too. I mean, the fact that big bands, were they were the entertainment. They were the, the oh, shows sure. that people would go see if they were bored on a Saturday night. Yeah, let's go see Glenn Miller's band play. And, and you danced to it because exactly. it was grooving because the drummer was keeping that beat alive. You know, they were doing what a good live band does, which is get people moving. Exactly. And I think we definitely have lost that connection with music from the Renaissance and from the classical era. Like the fact that these, so much of this music was used as entertainment, as dance, as parts of, of people's every day. And when you remove that aspect of the music from performance that you're missing, or you don't know about that, you're missing a huge part of what it is to understand yeah. this music as a whole. And certainly, yeah, box music was, some of it was written for performance, but a lot of it was written for for celebration and for entertainment and you want to I, I love it when there's teachers when I hear about teachers who are are having their students learn how to properly waltz or how to like yeah. do some of these dances and choreography that enables the students to experience the music in a much different way yeah yeah you know I've always regretted not um taking the time and learning how to do a saraband and a beret <laughs> and sort of like because i've oh i spend so much time thinking about how to play it i should just learn how to dance it and that would probably tell yeah. me more about how to play it than anything else i, f I feel the same way I, I i wish i would have learned how to do and like I still could, you know, <laughs> exactly. we're in, going through late. a pandemic. We can always learn how to do these things. <laughs> pandemic project. But actually, it was really funny. I was dating a guy once, um, and one of the things that we were doing, like, as as part of our, our getting to know each other phase was to take a dancing class and it was like it was a ballroom dancing class and so uh -huh. we it was like four weeks long and we were learning about <laughs> all these different I mean it was like it was really embarrassing but also so much fun huh. and it made me I, I mean of course it gave me a completely different perspective on on all sorts of things and and like when we were doing there was a I, I know there was a period where we did a little bit of like uh, jazz like some jazz step and it was great you know and it that absolutely changed the way that I was thinking about the jazz music that I was playing so if, if that little like you know ballroom dancing class can give me a different perspective on what it is that I'm doing with um you know uh you know, some Glenn Miller tune, then yeah, how can it not help and, and enhance my experience of, of the classical repertoire as well? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, I think this is a big, um, something that I think kids uh, uh, just automatically get that, that, you know, the the pop music that's all around them, hip hop and everything, top 40, everything that's on TV and, you know, all that stuff. Um, that that has a certain relevance physically like it makes you move in a way that's contemporary and like you see your friends moving and there's a sort of a hip-hop sort of way of moving it's just the style that goes with along with the clothing that accompanies different periods in history you know yeah. um, and they look at at listen to classical music and it's just not relevant in the same way because they don't 
physical they don't relate to the physical aspect of it or it's missing they just don't yeah. feel it. it's like everybody's playing it so carefully and and nicely it's like where is the beat mm-hmm. you know now the beat was different you know um you know let's face <laughs> a it you know, bit different but yeah um and you know perhaps the the you know the beat in music these days is more accentuated than it was in the baroque but i i think there was an energy that was that is missing um you know i don't know what it was but i can tell that something is not there in a lot of classical performances uh and i think it's the part that that just kind of it's uh the part that makes you move (laughs) you know i no, i totally agree i totally agree and i i i'm excited about hearing what the results are of of this of this uh this workshop that you're that you're putting together or this video that you're putting together because i think if i mean i think there's certainly a demand among uh, the younger classical generation as they're coming into college, they want to know more about this stuff. Yeah. You know, they, they're, they're witnessing it in their own lives and how like the music that they are, are enjoying, how it's influencing their own, you know, own performance and their own, uh, pr- uh performance opportunities. And they want to know more about all these things. And certainly they want to know more about group. They want to know more about, um, about the rhythm that drives this music forward, whether that be music from today or it be music from 400 years ago, they want to understand at a greater level how these things are are working and functioning and um you know we obviously we can't go back and ask Bach like so where was your inner groove or like what were you thinking about when you were doing this but I think we can absolutely use what is around us to inform uh, and enhance our experience of these pieces in a way that can really give it a whole new um yeah can make it a whole new experience yeah and I think also um young people classical players um are because the internet so much more aware of music from other parts of the world Mm -hmm. than when I was a kid and when I was in school, um, you know, we knew there was music out there, but we really didn't have much contact with it. Uh, unless you, you know, really found a good record store and, you know, spent money on records. Um, but you know, Today, I think young people, young string players, they kind of know that there's a lot more out there uh, and they're thirsty for it. And, and it's not really being taught in conservatories, in most conservatories yet. I, I mean, I don't know. I think I, I, I haven't done a um, you may be more in touch with this. I don't know what's going on at Manhattan, um, whether, you know, whether they're offering, especially string players, opportunities to to learn other stuff. I mean, Berkeley is is a, such a special place when you have, um, you know, classes in Turkish violin playing as well as bluegrass and jazz and you know, um, but that's definitely the outlier, not not the general uh, conservatory. Yeah, I, I feel like it's definitely changing. I mean, it's it's a slow boat to turn. Um, you know, because these conservatories, the larger the conservatory, the more rooted a lot of these different um, uh, course structures and, and um, you know, the curriculum, the more, the more locked in that is, and it's hard to change it. Yeah. But I feel like the students are sort of are forcing, forcing administrations to rethink how they are structuring degree programs, how porous they make the, deg- the different departments. So that there's more opportunity for people to collaborate with each other and right. you know, 
like someone from the jazz department, if they want to do work with some classical players, that they have that opportunity and it doesn't involve a mountain of paperwork or, or teacher ex exemptions to make that sort of thing happen. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely sense that at the different schools where I teach, um, that there's that the administration is wanting to to do what they can to help their, their students out with these opportunities. Um, it's it's, it's going to take a while to actually get it written into the curriculum, but there's a desire um, for that kind of thing to happen. Um, with Manhattan School, what's what is cool is that the you know the, the jazz department and the classical departments they are they they're equally strong. Like they're both incredible schools. Um, when I was there as a as a student, there was a little bit more division between them. Like it was basically like I was with my jazz like my jazz class and and the classical folk were with with theirs. Um, there were a few opportunities for um, for some interaction, like there was a jet, uh, an ensemble called the Jazz Philharmonic, which was a full string orchestra plus big band, hmm. um, and that was fantastic. You know, I, uh, there were um, the string section was primarily composed of classical and orchestral majors, um, and then the big band, of course, was comprised of um, of all all the jazz majors, and that was a really I, I know it was an eye opening experience for the string players because they had never really been in a uh, in that sort of situation where they're in a, a, a you know a familiar environment with the strings, but playing very different music. Yeah. Um, everything from you know Maria Schneider to um, to Chuck Owen to uh, you know student compositions. I mean, it was a really eye-opening experience for them. Um, and this, there's also some opportunity in the smaller chamber jazz ensembles to do um, to to draw players from from the classical division. Um, yeah, so there's, it happens, and it's happening more and more. Um, I think Berkeley is definitely one of those rare and like one of the few institutions that's it's built into the infrastructure that you that there's you know because the students are encouraged to you know, take a lesson for a year from from Jason Anik and then you know great great jazz and gypsy jazz player and then you know and take another um, uh, a semester of of work with Bruce Molsky you know one of the right. world's greatest old time players and then you know study with Sandy Cott who's like an amazing classical player so you ha the students are really encouraged to get that kind of a diverse education yeah. and I I think it's it might be a little while but I feel like more and more schools are going to be following that that uh, that path. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited about it. Belmont definitely is uh, the same thing. We, in yeah. fact, we sort of insist that people do a kind of a round robin and, you know, you have to get some classical and you have to get some bluegrass. And, yeah. you know, this is what, um, you know, if you're in the commercial department, uh, right. the non-classical stuff, you have to take classical as well, at least two years. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's good if you have, if you have the faculty that's offering all of that different stuff to yeah. the string players. Um, yeah, there are just aren't aren't a lot of them out there, at least the, the conservative ones, you know, they don't call them conservatories for nothing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. they're not generally the most progressive places they are, you know, and their job is to keep uh, to preserve and conserve and preserve this body of amazing masterpieces uh, that exist for, you know, in the classical uh, canon. And we don't want to let those die and to, to let that, um, uh, you know, uh, be forgotten uh, right. and just to be remembered on, on uh, you know, recordings. It's important that that's part of the live musical world. But um, there are other important things for string players to do. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> of course, any all these styles of music that we're discussing all 
deserve to have that like that sort of attentive like well, the artist like level of artistry that these players are bringing to it and right. and have it be studied and analyzed in in a, in a setting where it can really be given the attention and love it deserves but yeah as you said it's like if we're really trying to help students find their creative voice you want to show them what's out there and i mean it's certainly there's also the commercial benefit of it like as you know by learning about these different things you will hopefully be a more um you know uh desirable musician yeah marketable musician but for me the idea is like i want the students to figure out who they are as as artists and creators so beautiful And, and so important yeah, it's if, you know, they might be great classical players and that's where they're, where they're going to shine and that's where their love is. But they also might discover that they absolutely love old time music and that yep. they want to pursue that. And so let's give them that opportunity. I think yeah. that was one of the things that I loved about um, Mark O'Connor's camps uh, yes. back in the in the 90s um, when he had sort of like this buffet of, yes. of teachers. Who, like, exactly. All the students when they came, I think it was the first two days they were basically, I mean, it was when the camp was a little smaller. So you actually, all the students actually had a chance to go see all yep, the different teachers. It was the round robin. Yep. And it was fantastic. I mean, I was jealous of the students. I was like, I want to be part of the I know. <laughs> No, you have, oh. you know, Indian classical it was uh, teacher, old time, everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it was actually one of the things that really surprised me about Mark um, was that I, I expected it to be much more, you know, a regimented purist bluegrass kind of vibe. Uh, yeah. and, and when he invited me to be a part of it, I was like, what am I doing here? You know? <laughs> And, uh, you know, but I realized that, you know, he's got it's it was such a wonderfully eclectic um, mix. It really was. I mean, that's where I, I've met so many of the the string friend like string colleagues who I call friends now. I mean, these are people that I've known. What I think my first year teaching there was in 98. So, oh, God, I'm aging myself. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. But I've known so many Holy of those people God. for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the world is that the string world is is small enough that, you know, we, yeah, we're all friends. And it's like, and we all had a chance, like, by going to these camps for years, teaching them, we would sneak into each other's classes and check out what was going on. And yeah. it was yeah. just, it was such an eye-opening experience. And, and for in, the students who came through that, it's like, wow, the world's yeah. your oyster, you know? Yeah. And in one wonderfully uh, educational experience for all of us teachers, like you say, you know, to to see, for me to go around and see how you're teaching, how what Jason Addict's doing, how is Daryl doing this, and to just pop in and, and, and steal secrets and steal tricks from everybody. <laughs> you know, we all did that. And, and it's, uh, you know, I really do miss that. Now Asta kind of has taken the place a little bit of that, you know, um, yeah. but uh, yeah. No, it's a wonderful thing. And, you know, you mentioned um, earlier this idea of, um, you know, string players wanting to uh, find their voice and to feel like what's really them. And one thing that uh, along those lines that I think is so important for our young string players to remember is that strings were always a part of the pop culture until the 20th century. You know, when Bach was writing stuff, he was writing in this contemporary groove that people around him were grooving on. When Mozart was doing that, it was the Viennese groove, right? And and it was stylized. It was very, I mean, there was 
fashion and music and all, exactly like today and 30 years after the it was old hat and old school and nobody was dancing to that stuff anymore just like the way fashions change today um but this idea that that the string players were participating in that because strings were one of the one of the most uh, essential instruments uh, at least in european music at that time you know in the yeah. classical where, where all the classical music comes from um and somehow that stopped you know and in the 20th century at least in the u.s you know the strings sort of kind of got into a different path where it became sort of this purest classical uh, european art music and pop music went this way with yeah. you know the jazz era and the rock era and uh then the hip-hop era and all of that um and strings just kind of became i sort of were identified in the early 20th century with the old old school european style that it represented so well for so many hundreds of years uh and that transition is a difficult one and um what happened here in the U.S. in the 20th century with strings uh, and the whole way that string pedagogy and conservatories sort of ossified this European or Belgian, Euro, you know, Franco-Belgian style of fiddle playing as sort of the ultimate, you know, version yeah. of, of string playing. Something funny happened there. Something got lost. <laughs> You know, yeah. something was gained, but something was lost. Yeah, I, boy, that was that was pretty awesome. I'm like trying to figure out like, right, where do I go from there? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. It's there seems to be, like you said, I think um, this disconnect with what the violin, like what its purpose or what where its place is in yes. in modern music. Yeah, and it's not necessarily something aside from the Dave Matthews Band. It's not necessarily something that we see in popular context very often. Right. Now it's a little Outside bit different country. with country music, yeah. right? It's different with country music, um, but. I don't know. I, I I see the gener like this younger generation of people who are coming up through um, through Berkeley, and I'm sure you see the same at Belmont. There's so many unique, amazing voices that are blending all of these different experiences together into something that will speak to people on mass appeal. I have no doubt. Yeah. And I love. I'm so excited to see that happen, um, and to see how the violin is going to find its footing again and its place again in in more of the pop and uh, mainstream music worlds. Um, I'm yeah. I'm I'm really excited about it. I I I think a lot about how like how frustrating it was when I was a kid that there wasn't more um, more uh, of a visual like in a popular way, a visual element of like what violin playing was all about and how it could be used in such diverse settings. Um, but I'm, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm really excited that that's changing. And um, that's so we'll encouraging, encouraging to hear that. And do you think that social media has something to do with that? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm, I mean, I'm the least tech savvy person ever. So I'm not going to yeah. be the one who's making I'm waves right by any you. stretch. But, um, but yeah, I, I see the way that so many of my students are, are 
creating a fan base through what they're doing with singles or with through, I'm, I'm not on TikTok, but I know that I've got some kids who are like are way into it and, and have a pretty huge following already. Yeah. And they're yeah. in a lot of ways are just in the, in the beginning phases of their career, but they have a good sense of who they are, what they're wanting to do. And in a lot of ways, even though they're kind of finding what their voice is, they've, they've amassed a, a crew of people who love them and support them and are on the venture adventure with them. Yeah. Um, so it's really sort of this um, very organic in a way. I mean, it's one of the positives I think of the social media world is that it's um, it, these these young voices are able to find a family of supporters that can encourage them as they're as they're finding their footing, and um, and yeah, it's I, I think it's a, it makes a huge difference because you're not having kids like you know um, they're not by their lonesomes in their bedroom trying to figure things out, yeah. they're actually having a chance to to communicate with their friends at a greater level. And um, I think that's one of the beautiful things about what social media is able to do. Yes, yeah. It's so cool to, to see all these electric violin players. You know, I mean, like I follow a hashtag electric violin. So, you know, I get a lot of stuff <laughs> popping up on my Instagram. I'm sure, yeah. Uh, but, and you see all these electric fiddle players I'm doing covers of pop songs and you know you see this all the time and they're not all great you know they're um whatever you know but what's what's great is to see how much energy there is among string players who are interested in that music mm -hmm. interested in their own pop culture that that's part of their you know their culture and not a 200 year old european culture uh and trying to do something with it and the more that the more common that becomes the better because what it's doing is it's breaking down that barrier of oh violins don't play that music mm -hmm. you know i mean just to have them whether it's played well or not just to have the violin associated with it <laughs> you know yeah, with, awesome. with our own pop culture yeah is is a huge um you know it's sort of like a, a balm on a wound you know it just sort of is going to help heal this separation that happened with strings and help to just knit strings back into this fabric and and to uh to sort of heal uh, what i think has been a real a real wound for string players i think so yeah i mean i i i mean it's a little bit different but growing up i i got so frustrated hearing like you play jazz violin like what this like this look of like yeah. disgust it's like or what like or like i'm an oddball like what yeah like how doing? weird is that that's the yeah. weirdest thing i've ever heard of <laughs> and i so i i'm i'm excited to see like when I'm, I'm hearing students talk like when they say like when they're like trying to get some work either with a wedding band or if they're if they've they're putting out a, a cover of a pop song or something when um they are like talking to the employer and they're like yeah i play violin and, and i'm uh you know and again like i can play these songs and when, and, the, and the fact that their employers are actually like really genuinely excited about that like oh wow that's great that would be awesome to have in the band or you know it, it's seen as an opportunity yeah. for um something that would be really different and fun and great uh unique voice yeah. and um and it, yeah I, I, a lot a lot of this has to do i think just with that um, that enthusiasm that the students have for it. They're not, you know, they're, they're pushing forward. They're not letting yeah. um, whatever stereotypes or um, expectations people have of the instrument hold them back. They're, yes. they're definitely pushing the boundaries and saying, okay, I love this music. I love that music. And I love this. I'm going to braid it all together and, and make this into something of my own. And here I go.
Yep. And yeah, how can you go wrong when that's happening? You know, it's it's just really it's 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 inspiring to me to see that kind of thing happening for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's the future of music that we're talking about right there. <laughs> it's the kids. Yep. Very cool. Well, hey, do you feel like playing a round of Not My Gig? <laughs> I've been terrified knowing, uh, yeah, wondering what this is going to be, but you know. <laughs> Speaking about the your future. <laughs> God. All right, bring it on. Well, Sarah Caswell, who has been voted numerous times rising star by Downbeat Magazine Critic Reader's Poll. Uh, we're going to find out how much you know about the Rising Star Casino <laughs> in Rising Sun, Indiana. Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> well, you may know something about the wow, Rising no, Star Casino. Wow, no, I guarantee casino. I've only set foot in a casino once, and it was in Yonkers, <laughs> New York. So oh, my God, in Yonkers. <laughs> I lived in Yonkers for years. Oh, my God. But I do know about Rising Star Star Indiana. Okay, this is going to be a rising sun, Indiana. All right. Yeah. Right. Oh God. Okay. okay. You ready? Bring now, it I on. I don't expect you to know any of these, but <laughs> I'm going to ask you anyway. All right. So the Rising Star Casino features <laughs> an RV park <laughs> with both back end and pull through spaces. About which Robert C said, "It has a very nice comfort station, and it has its own <laughs> pool." <laughs> It has its own pool, open exclusively to RV park guests and their visitors. Oh, God. And this pool has adult-only hours. <laughs> God. So we want to know, what are those hours? Are they A, noon to midnight, B, 7 p.m. to midnight, or C, 10.30 to midnight? Oh, God. Okay, I have a stomachache from laughing so hard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to go with C, 10.30 to midnight. It's actually 7 to midnight. Really? I'm afraid. Oh, so just to give those Early adults to bed. only a little. Man, what's going know? on there? <laughs> All right. No worries. No worries. There are, there are other questions here. All right. Okay. Get serious now. All right. So the, uh, the Rising Star Casino has a Forever Young Mondays <laughs> for... For their older um, guests, <laughs> Forever Young Mondays, you get 50% off if you're over what age? Ooh, okay. A, 50, B, 75, or C, 40? <laughs> I'd technically be in the senior citizen category now, so that's not a good sign <laughs> for me. Okay, I'm going to say, was the first option 50? 50. Hmm. I, I feel like I kind of need to go with 50. I would go with the 50. I think that's yeah. kind of where where you're uh, looking at. And that is exactly right. Forever yes. Young, 50% off for 50 and over. Woo! <laughs> there we go. All right. One and one. And now the final question. Oh, dear. The Rising Star Casino is in eastern Indiana on the shore oh, of what... God. Major American River. A, the Wabash, B, the Ohio, or C, the White River. All right, it can't. Eastern oh God, Indiana. I'm so going to embarrass myself with this. Major American River. Right. It's not. I don't think it's going to be the White River. 
I think it's going to be um, oh, Craw Crawfordsville. Is, uh, I'm thinking like my Indiana geography here. It's, it's across okay, so it's the river kind of from Cincinnati-ish. It's going to be Ohio. There. It is the Ohio yes. River. You are absolutely correct. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Oh, my God. That was really See, stressful. <laughs> it was a little stressful, but not not as bad as showing up to a gig and not knowing what the charts are. So Good call. <laughs> and tell all our listeners where they can find you and what you've got coming up and uh, any special things happening. Yeah. So... Um... Oh boy. Well, I, I do a lot of sideman work, so I've got a number of recordings that have been done. Uh, I've been in New York here in almost 20 years now, so a number of recordings that I've been a part of over the last 20-some years. Um, but I also have a new uh, solo project that um, I actually recorded right before the pandemic happened, uh, and I've been delaying the release of it just because I wanted to tour and, and actually get that project out in the right way. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't really want to wait any longer. So. Good for you. So, um, so that's hopefully going to be coming out this year. So I oh, would wow. encourage, encourage folk to um, to check my website um, and most of my social media uh, activities is on Facebook and uh, Instagram. Um, so I encourage folk to, to visit me there, say hi, um, and, uh, and, you, and you can check out my YouTube channel as well. I'm, I'm starting to build that up and get some more content on there as well. So Excellent. Um, yeah, just, I'll, yeah, hopefully I'll have more information to share soon about a release date for that new, uh, that new project, but I'm what's, really excited about it. What's the name of it going to be? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of uh, <laughs> still working I'm, on I've, that one. I, I have it. I have it narrowed down to uh, two different titles. So I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna spare you that I will. I, I want to know first myself before I share it with people. Okay, it's with, it's <laughs> fair with enough. My, it's with my group that I've been playing with for um, over ten years. Um, oh wow. Mike Sturm on bass, um, Jesse Lewis on guitar, Jared Shonig on drums. Um, and then a special guest, uh, Chris Dingman on, on Vibes, and it's being produced by um, Jeff Levinson. Nice. So, uh, yeah, I'm really excited about it. So Well, see. good luck with that. I can't wait Thank to hear you. it. Thanks so much. Sarah, thanks so much for being a good sport, and thanks for all of your insight into the future of strings and where young string players are. It's good to have somebody who's got their ear to the ground and knowing what's going on at Berkeley and at Manhattan and in the studios around Manhattan and Brooklyn, where you live. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for the invitation to be be part of this. And I'm, I, I am ever inspired by what you're doing as a performer and as an educator and, oh, and also as a community, uh, you know, someone who's bringing the community of the string of string players together in this capacity. And I think it's really, uh, it's very inspiring and influential. So thank you. For thank that. you very much. I really appreciate that. It's a good community and I'm glad to be a part of it. So, and thanks for being a part of it with me. Appreciate thank it. You. <laughs> See you, Sarah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want to stay in touch, please join the For the Greater Groove Facebook group. See ya. Groove on. <laughs>